You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is the Nancy and Joseph Keithley, Professor of Technology Management at the Weatherhead School of Management at Case Western Reserve University. His research interests lie in the broad areas of innovation management, entrepreneurship, and digital globalization. Holding a PhD in Business Administration from Syracuse University, his latest book is titled The Digital Multinational, Navigating the New Normal in Global Business. It's my pleasure to welcome to this show, Dr. Satish Nambasan. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. It's wonderful to be here. Well, firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and your research. Sure. So um, I'm trained as an engineer, um, but I didn't uh, uh, work in the industry for long as an engineer. I uh, did my master's in business and uh, then I did my PhD. Um, in between, I worked with Unilever for around four years. And uh, then I got got into academy. So I've been in the academics world for uh, close to 25 years. Um, my area of research, like you mentioned, is in innovation management and entrepreneurship and uh, really even focused on how digital technologies redefine uh, the, uh, both innovation and entrepreneurship, uh, both domestically as well as uh, globally in, in the international business. Okay, so your latest book is titled The Digital Multinational, Navigating the New Normal in Global Business. So can you start by explaining how digitization and digital technologies have, have changed globalization? Sure. So I think uh, before we get into digital uh, globalization, it's good to have a look at uh, where we are coming from. So globalization is not a really new uh, way of uh, or trend. Uh, we have been globalizing uh, in, in the business world for quite some time, especially after the World War II, um, we have had significant, uh, uh, you know, increases in the extent of uh, uh, companies uh, doing business in other parts of the world, uh, primarily because of uh, World Trade Organization and uh, other institutional uh, arrangements that have, that came up after World War II. Um, so, but we have been at a very steady clip in terms of uh, growth of globalization. Uh, so, if you one of the good metrics of globalization is the uh, number of uh, multinational enterprises. So, if you look at um, around 1960s or 70s, there were around uh, you know 7,000 uh, multinational enterprises in the world. Um, that sort of uh, increased to about 38,000 or 40,000 uh, uh, by the turn of the millennium. Uh, so it was a very steady rate of increase. But in the last 10, 15 years, or maybe 20 years, um, it has, uh, you know, increased exponentially. By 2015, it was around 100,000 multinational enterprises. So you can see that uh, there's a big change happening. And that is primarily due to digital technologies. So uh, really, uh, digital technologies allowed companies to uh, scale their business globally. Um, to port their business models across, um, you know, geographical boundaries. Um, and that pace has been uh, significant. Um, so just to give you an example, you know, 
So if you take the uh, hotel industry, um, Airbnb is a good example. Um, Airbnb was established uh, in the late 2000, 2008, 2009. And uh, in about eight to 10 years, um, the company was able to establish presence in around 190 countries. Um, so if you just compare that with a traditional hotel chain like uh, Marriott, which took uh, approximately, which was established in 1955, 57, or around that time period, it took Marriott um, about 70 years to expand to about 130 countries. So you can see that, uh, you know, the uh, expansion, the rate of expansion or increasing the global footprint um, has been significantly altered the, the dynamics uh, due to digital technologies. Um, so that's just one instance. And then we have examples of, you know, the social media or other digital platforms, uh, Amazon and other, uh, you know, uh, Uber, uh, many of these companies that have been able to scale the presence uh, in a significant amount of time. So that is what we capture as digital globalization. And that is really the book is about that. So the new context for that is uh, we have been in the, you know, the globalization wave, like I mentioned, has been going for uh, quite a long time. Um, but in the last uh, maybe around five to 10 years, there has been a simultaneously a shift in, um, in some respects, at least in localization forces or deglobalization forces. So whether you take it uh, either due to geopolitical tensions, for example, between U.S. and China, or, uh, you know, uh, some countries that, uh, you know, digital technologies are um, not um, making uh, things uh, safe for other countries, um, the so-called digital colonization. So these um, uh, issues have sort of come up, and uh, there has been a push towards uh, deglobalization. So the really interesting context for business these days is this tension between globalization and deglobalization. And that, that forms the interesting context uh, where we examined how digital technologies can help multinational enterprises to navigate that kind of business landscape. Okay, so next I wanted to ask about this idea of tight and loose coupling that you introduced in the book. Can you explain this concept and, and its applications maybe? Sure. So, um, you know, like I mentioned, there is a tension between globalization and deglobalization. So in a globalized world, um, companies would ideally like to have a similar business model um, so that in, they can enhance their efficiency, right? The, for example, whether you are doing business in Brazil, India, or the U.S., if you're running the same business model, you can optimize on your resources, you can optimize on your processes, and you can run a very lean and efficient uh, operations. Um, but when there is deglobalization, what that means is that now you have to specialize to the local context uh, because there are, you know, what operates in Brazil may not work well in India because of these different uh, forces at work in locally. And so you have to uh, be much more flexible. You have to be more agile. You have to be more, you know, adapt to the circumstances that are localized. And so here, then you see that um, you need to, uh, in globalized world, you can be efficient, but in deglobalized world, you have to be more adaptive and uh, flexible. 
So as we move towards this new uh, business landscape where both globalization and deglobalization coexist. So now businesses have to be uh, both efficient in some places and uh, you know flexible in other places and they have to operate this. And it's not very easy for large companies like Unilever and uh, you know multinationals like uh, Philips uh, uh, or Johnson Controls uh, or Aditya Birla Group in India. These large multinationals who have presence in hundreds of different countries it becomes very difficult. So the notion of loose coupling is to see how digital technologies can help companies be both flexible on the one hand, as well as be make enhanced efficiency. So the notion of loose coupling is really comes from uh, computing world, right? So if you are a software developer or software programmer, you would be very familiar with the idea that uh, when you write programs, you want it to be modular and loosely coupled so that when you change some aspect of a program, um, it doesn't create ripple effects and you know you have to go and change uh, lots of other things in the in, in your system. So you're basically isolating the changes. So a loosely coupled uh, system means that there is less interdependencies between different parts of the system. So there is more uh, ability to adapt to new conditions that are localized. On the other hand, if it's tightly coupled, which means that uh, everything is dependent on all the different parts of a system are dependent on one another, you can increase the efficiency, but you are going to lose on the flexibility. So uh, this loose coupling, tight coupling, the same idea that we apply in programming in computing field can be transported into uh, business field. So what does it mean in the business field? Um, we say that, um, you know, if, uh, if it's a highly globalized environment, you can afford to have a tightly coupled uh, business where there is a headquarters of the, for the multinational enterprise and uh, pretty much all the operations and decisions are done in the headquarters and, you know, instructions are given out to the different subsidiaries in different markets or different countries and they carry out the operation, right? So that's a very tightly coupled uh, system. That's not going to work in a deglobalized world, like we, as we just described. So in a deglobalized world, you want more loose coupling, which means that you want more decision-making power assigned to these subsidiaries in the foreign countries. And uh, there is more, more that increases the overall flexibility of the multinational enterprise operations. So uh, loose coupling is, um, we can, so when there is globalization, we move towards tight coupling. And when there is more deglobalization, we move towards loose coupling. And so this idea that uh, tight and loose coupling provides a framework for companies to decide how they should, uh, you know, where decision-making sh uh, rights should be located and how they should arrange the structure of their company. And technology can, uh, digital technologies can help both. Digital technologies can help um, implement more tightly coupled um, systems. It can also um, help uh, implement more loosely coupled systems. So that's where the loose and tight coupling concept comes useful. Okay, so next I wanted to talk a little bit more about how companies can take advantage of digital technologies when expanding into overseas markets. 
Um, so for a lot of American companies, the most lucrative overseas market is often China, with over a billion customers and a rapidly growing middle class. Um, however, many companies like Uber, Google, eBay, and many more have struggled with the vastly different regulatory environment and consumer culture as they try to direct the expansion from conference rooms in Silicon Valley um, instead of being on the ground. However, when um, going the other way around, Chinese companies like Shein and TikTok, which are primarily digital, have seen tremendous success in the American market. So why have American companies struggled to adapt to these geopolitical realities in the Chinese market? And why do you think the same hasn't been true of Chinese companies in the U.S.? Right. Um, that's a good question. So I would first say that uh, there are quite a lot of um, uh, American companies who have uh, been successful in China. But um, one of the things which uh, one should keep in mind is the how dynamic the regulatory uh, environment is in China compared to, uh, let's say, in the U.S. So um, if a company goes from here to, uh, let's say, operate in, in China, which many of our consumer product companies have, uh, you know, anything from Walmart to Home Depot to uh, luxury cosmetics companies have all um, been uh, in, expanded into China in different uh, ways or forms. Um, if uh, it involves setting up physical infrastructure and if it involves, uh, let's say, retail outlets, and if it involves uh, hiring lots of people, making goods, then uh, there is you are getting um, more susceptible to uh, the regulatory infrastructure of that particular uh, host country. Um, so in China, if uh, you know you set up all these things, factories, production units, um, and then some changes happens in the regulatory infrastructure, um, it becomes very difficult for uh, companies to operate. So that's what, uh, you know, in the U.S. companies going to China, what do you see? Um, the other part of it is that um, compared to the U.S., there has been more uh, consumer backlash um, against uh, U.S. companies in China for various uh, geopolitical tensions, right, um, for whether it is in a human rights uh, issues that come up um, and these U.S. companies are caught between, uh, you know, they have a consumer customer base in the U.S. and in Europe. Uh, at the same time, they have, um, you know, the Chinese customers. So on the one hand, if, the, if you are, if you try to adapt to everything that what the Chinese customers want, then you're going to have a backlash in the rest of the world. So they're sort of caught in between um, these two. Um, so these are all dynamics that companies have to manage. If you are a purely digital company, then it becomes uh, easier to navigate some of these constraints. Um, you can uh, rapidly scale down or scale up the ro your operations. That's one way. You can change your business models. Um, so there are several things that you can change um, in terms of your platform, in terms of your offerings. If you're, uh, you know, if you're an online retailer or purely digital um, uh, company, I think uh, if you look at the Chinese companies uh, coming to the to US or Europe or Western uh, countries, I don't think that all of them are equally successful. So you know, the companies like uh, Huawei and other telecommunications companies have Chinese companies have faced. Uh, 
a number of uh, obstacles in expanding to the US and European markets. So, so I think um, they also have the same problems that uh, US companies face, but there are some exceptions like Shane, like you just mentioned, which has had um, significant um, uh, success in, in the fast consumer um, fashion market. Um, you can also look at what happened to TikTok, right? Um, another case study where a Chinese-based company has had significant, um, it's a digital pure play. Uh, it has had significant success in the U US market. Um, but then um, there were some political tensions that uh, sort of uh, came up in the last three, four years. And the company had to adapt the way it structured, governed. Um, so it had to make some accommodations in that respect. So um, I wouldn't say that, um, you know, Chinese companies have been more successful in this. Uh, it's just that uh, there have been more U.S. companies going into China than the U Chinese companies coming into U.S. or the Western markets. But I think um, these political tensions affect both sets of companies equally well. Uh, one of the probably one of the reasons in this is that the U.S. environmental or rather um, regulatory infrastructure is more uh, stable. And there is, uh, you know, the legal infrastructure is also more predictable. So that provides some additional uh, relief for Chinese companies. Okay, so next I wanted to talk about how digitization removes barriers to entry and competition. So prior to widespread internet connectivity, Expanding internationally required a lot of capital to set up new locations, understand local preferences, and gain name recognition. However, new software as a service or software-based companies like Zoom, PayPal, EDX, etc. can easily offer their services across the world at no additional effort or cost, um, or very minimal additional effort or cost. Um, with that reduced barrier to entry also comes increased competition. There are now thousands of payment apps, online course providers, social media apps, and so on. So how does this new reality shape international expansion for uh, companies? And what do they have to do differently now um, to thrive in an environment with this way higher competition? That's a good question. So um, like you said, one of the, the first point is that digital technologies don't uh, have geographical boundaries. As long as the technological infrastructure in a host country is, uh, you know, uh, aligned with the platform, you can easily port your business model and your services and offerings to that host country with minimal cost, right? Um, so you can instantly cater to a global market uh, uh, and the cost of doing that is much less, which is why you find this uh, uh, direct-to-consumer uh, companies like D2C companies uh, flourishing in, uh, uh, in the last two, three years of maybe four or five years. Having said that, um, you know, there are also, it's not, uh, it's not completely, um, uh, you know, a port while portability and scalability is very easy in digital environments, there are also local situations where you have to adapt your offering to some extent. So it's not completely uh, true that, uh, you know, there is less cost. There is some cost in localization of your platforms. And, you know, let me just give you an example. Um, so, um, Bayer, um, the pharmaceutical company, um, owns Monsanto Corporation, which uh, the U.S.-based seed company. And one of the um, one of the divisions within that is the Climate Corporation. So, Climate Corporation offers uh, 
what is called as a, a field view. It's a digital agricultural platform uh, that provides a lot of services to farmers um, related to seeds and uh, crop, right? Uh, so the field view has been very uh, successful in the U.S. and the Western markets, and even in South America, in Brazil and other countries. So when the company, so this is a digital platform, um, and you can easily port it to other countries. So when they took it to the in, to India in 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 couple of years back, um, they found that, uh, you know, while the technology is portable, um, there are some issues. The first issue was that the farmers in India were uh, small landholders compared to those in the U.S. and other parts of Western world. So they didn't need this um, uh, that many sophisticated and expensive services. Second was that second uh, factor was that uh, the farmers in India had were uh, using mobile phones, um, not laptops or other devices, primarily mobile phones. And these mobile phones had, um, you know, lower um, bandwidth um, um, uh, capabilities. And so some of these uh, more sophisticated services that were built into the platform were not easily uh, implementable. So, so the company soon realized that while theoretically the digital platform could be easily ported to the Indian environment. The market characteristics there required a few, making a few adjustments. So they basically ad refined or adapted the platform to fit uh, the Indian uh, market conditions. So this is just one example. So you can see that digital portability and scalability is very important um, and it's a big enabler for multinational companies to expand their footprint. But at the same time, they have to uh, take into consideration uh, some of the local conditions. These could be cultural uh, conditions too, uh, not just uh, market, but also uh, cultural factors that uh, requires making some changes. So I think uh, that's the first uh, thing that companies would uh, face as an issue that uh, even with the digital uh, platforms and digital offerings, when they try to expand to other countries or markets, they have to really think about uh, the the local context um uh, and make some adaptations as needed the second part is what you mentioned that uh, the more uh, portable the digital uh, platforms are the greater the competition and that competition actually can come in both ways right um it uh, there are lots of uh, uh, what we call as micro multinationals multinationals that are uh, you know uh, sort of startups um uh, and uh, uh, what we call as born digital globals. They are born as digital ventures and born as multinational enterprises. Um, and these companies are in China, India, and other parts of the world. And so they also have significant advantage. Um, and a, a good example of that is Ola, which is this uh, Indian, um, you know, uh, car uh, rental, um, uh, very similar to Uber. So I think uh, this competition is uh, another big uh, factor which we talk about in our book too. That uh, you know, uh, traditionally, uh, multi to going into other countries require a lot of investments. Um, and uh, but in the digital era, those costs are much less, so the barriers are much less. And so while on the one hand it's easier to port your applications or offerings or business models to other countries, on the other hand. 
um, there's going to be a lot more competition. So, and many of these competitors are not your traditional large established multinational companies. They are much more nimble, agile, small um, micro multinationals. And so the, the nature of the competition itself uh, becomes different. This is very much true in the fintech industry um, and also in the uh, digital healthcare industry. So you find so lots of small companies that are porting their uh, uh, offerings to foreign countries or other countries uh, with minimal cost and fighting and uh, you know competing with established multinationals like Philips. So I think both of these are going to be there, these, both these issues. So next I wanted to ask about the potential threat that digital globalization um, might pose to state sovereignty and the effects that that could have. Um, so just intuitively, I would assume that increasing digitization would make it much more difficult for regulators to control um, MNCs expanding into their borders. It's probably much more difficult to control and regulate Facebook um, if it decides to expand into your country than it was to regulate a physical brick-and-mortar um, store's expansion, say, 50 years ago. Um, so how do you see governments, so do you see governments across the world, especially more authoritarian ones, seeing digital globalization as a threat to their sovereignty? And what impact do you think that might have? Right. That's a very interesting uh, uh, topic for discussion. I think uh, that's, we can and already see that it's happening, right? So the digital sovereignty concerns are there in Europe, vis-a-vis um, -vis Chinese companies, Chinese telecommunications companies coming into Europe. And uh, like I said, it is also there in um, China, as you mentioned, uh, whether it is Facebook or Google or, or uh, Amazon, many of these companies are sort of barred or uh, even if they are there, they can change um, the regulations. So the first part is that the, the, there is growing concern about the power of large uh, digital platform companies and other uh, digital companies. Um, by uh, governments in different uh, countries. So, so that's the first point. And there are, uh, as you said, the regulatory infrastructure is still very, very um, uh, at the earliest stage, I guess, uh, for digital companies. So company, many countries are sort of catching up um, in establishing um, new regulations and policies as to how uh, and when and where digital companies can operate. So the, there has been a period of time, I would say, the last 10 years where it's pretty much free for all and, uh, you know, less regulated. So you see that Uber went into UK had, uh, um, and then finally realized that there is going to be new regulations coming up which constrain its operations. Um, and uh, so I think uh, five to 10 years from now, uh, the regulatory infrastructure is going to be completely different. Most governments in most countries are going to realize that they have to have new policies, new regulations to, um, uh, you know, with respect to tax, um, um, how to tax these uh, uh, digital companies with respect to what data and privacy, consumer privacy, with respect to um, what kind of uh, trade is allowed on these platforms. So you'll see this as regulations, um, you know, new regulations come into existence. Um, there will be more and more constraints on the operations of this digital platform. So I, I, what I see is that uh, the gradual maturity of the digital um, globalization, um, the markets in terms of both regulatory infrastructure as well as computation in the next uh, 10 to 15 years 
And so it is not likely to be the same that we have seen in the past 10 years. And uh, so there is good reason for that to happen um, because we have seen many examples of, uh, you know, consumer data privacy uh, being exploited. Um, so I think uh, uh, there is a lot of good things to have come out of these new policies and regulations. So it may not be um, all just by authoritarian governments, but it could also be other countries establishing uh, new rules and policies um, the way they have, you know, regulated other industries. It's just that uh, um, many uh, governments have been, uh, you know, sort of uh, um, been slow in this, uh, realizing the need to regulate these new industries. It's very similar to what is happening in the crypto world, right? So uh, now most countries recognize that, uh, you know, it cannot be left unregulated because that will hurt uh, the sovereignty of the country. It will hurt the financial situation. It will hurt the consumers. So there is a need for regulation. So now how much of that is to be regulated may vary from one country to another country. But the broader picture is that uh, new regulations are going to come, whether it is crypto or digital platforms or other aspects of the digital business world. Okay, well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Namsen. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.